In April 2020, just as the global pandemic was kicking off, Lawrence and I started recording our weekly Friday Firesides. These are conversations broadcast live over the Crowdcast platform and joined by people all over the world who listen in and share their thoughts with us via the chat. We started these live recordings as an opportunity to keep in touch with our members, as well as process what it meant to run a business during a pandemic. Since then, we've broadcast nearly every single Friday and built up a library of over 100 episodes. We cover a range of different topics from money to meaning, pricing to purpose, vision to vulnerability, entrepreneurship to empathy, and product design to life design. This is our perspective of what it means to do business from the inside out, as well as the outside in. If you're a business hippie just like us, then you'll definitely find something of value here. We hope that these conversations inspire and motivate you to do work and build businesses that create meaningful change without burning out. Because like us, you're just wanting to make money, do good and be happy. Today, we are joined by Gareth Thornsey. Now, Gareth, we met, well, you told me you remember Lawrence from when the first time we met. But I don't think you and I talked. So uh, I met Lawrence when Drew used to be over at Forest many, many, many years ago. Yeah, I think it was 2013. I honestly don't know. It's all just a blur. And um, but you were close pals then, I remember. And I think you were just starting to think about or just started Happy Startup. I remember, I think Lawrence showed me a little manifesto or a little... I can't remember exactly, but there was something written down that he showed me. Wow. So, yeah, there's a, a lot of water under the bridge since then. We'd like to start off with a quick check-in to just you know, share how we're arriving and uh, sort of get a temperature check of the mood. Um, Gareth, how are you today? Well, I'm pretty well. What's it your colour? <laughs> well, I'm always... I never get to the top and I never get to the bottom. And if I'm in those three predominantly second one down, I'm really happy with things because... I think you always need somewhere to go at the extremes. Generally feeling pretty good because I ended up having to go to London three times in the last two weeks doing stuff that I really feel like I'm out of my comfort zone doing. And they all went pretty well. And I met loads of really decent, tidy people on the same wavelength. And all of a sudden now things are starting to feel more relaxed as a consequence of doing the stuff that I've run away from for decades. Awesome. And were those things, were these events you were going to and talks you oh, were giving? Yeah. It was, it was One of the design festival, was it? I yeah, two of the design festival. Another thing was meeting this thing called One Question, which that's a kind of question and answer where you have this panel, but a small audience, and it's a conversation. And then out mm-hmm. of that, they try to make societal change um, because the people in the audience are all sort of thinking that way, but most of them are sort of connected with big companies and things. So that was really cool. And the London Design Festival stuff was just mad because I didn't really know what I was expecting. And I turned up on Sunday in the V&A in this huge auditorium with these kind of, you know, world-class types. And they were all talking metaverse. And I was talking about privacy and the individual and all this kind of stuff. So I think I must have been there as the kind of extreme end of one thing. <laughs> but it was brilliant. Wow. And the people I met were superb. They were absolutely brilliant. And the people I met afterwards, it was really cool. I was curious when you said about kind of going out of your comfort zone. 
um, and I'd like to maybe touch on that because it's some of the things, one of the things that we're always curious to poke people about in our community and when they work with us and what that can lead to because also I think hopefully it's relevant to the conversation we're going to have about your journey and, and the things that you're doing now. But on that, before we jump into the story, maybe share a bit for those of the listeners who um, haven't heard of Mood before or may not know about you, uh, just a brief description of of the app and um, what it's there to do. Okay. Um, it all came out of scratching my own itch. So I had this uh, big problem that I sort of slept. I, don't, I never know if it's slept-walked or sleepwalked. Let's say sleepwalked into this sort of long-term major depression. And when I made all these changes to sort of um, help alleviate that, because there was no help around, I was still wasn't sure if they were making a difference. So I realized I kind of had to see how I feel, so to speak, in color, because, you know, the brain is tricking you all the time into, in terms of what it's telling you, so in terms of what you, you think you remember and the reality. So... That took the form of a calendar and pens. I then ended up joining the Frazzled community after using it for a long time. That came about because of COVID. Ruby Wax went online. They liked it. Ruby liked it, so I designed it. Uh, and then she said, can I write about it? So I designed it a bit more. And she then gave me a credit at the beginning of her last book. And then um, she made me accountable publicly to do it. So then I had to find a way to do it. And the whole thing is just simply, it's designed for me at my worst. And therefore, because that's a kind of often a universal, you can find that. I'm not saying that's a special condition. That's a typical condition that affects many, many people. So because I found a way to help myself simply, it seemed that there was no choice really if I could find a way of um, making a way for that to be easy for other people to do. So basically, you just simply take the words out of the equation and you just get a simple notification. It comes up, it asks you a non-leading question, which is how do you feel today? The lighter your mood, the lighter the shade. It's a point of reflection. And I think of your mood as the sort of emotions over a period of time, the prevailing emotions over a period of time. And you could say, well, let's do it every day throughout the day. And that's fine at that level. But I used to initially used to do it several times a day and then it became too burdensome. And then I used to add notes and it was still too burdensome and I lost the habit. So what I realized, I keep coming back to the core audience of why I did it. And unless you make it as simple as possible, and I was informed by a lot of the sort of tiny habit stuff, which is why I keep saying one tap a day. Um, so when the motivation isn't there, you still, you make the ability as easy as possible. So you can do that without even checking into the app if you want. So the notification is outside. You just make that entry. And then each day it stacks each new entry on the one before. So what you get to see is this realistic picture. But the, the thing then is that to get perspective, you need to be able to go through that historically, but also see it at different scales. So sometimes, you know, if you're looking at a painting, you can only see the brush strokes if it's a paint actually, you know. But then as you zoom back, you start to see the picture. And if you zoom right out, you start to see the big picture. So it's just a really simple tool that allows you to form a habit that then allows you to become self-aware, which I see as the sort of foundational layer for managing your mental health in a, in a sort of better way. And then if you ever need to ask for help, it also, by taking the words away, 
makes it easier to initiate that conversation. So on a bigger scale, I'm thinking if you empower enough individuals and privacy as well, so it's, it's, it's only on the phone, but if you empower enough individuals, you, you have the potential to make a societal difference. So that's the way I think about it. And it suits me. It's really handy because I would never want to create more stuff in the world or have big servers with loads of you know energy. So the fact that everyone's got a phone anyway and being able to piggyback on the back of that plus the privacy and all of that being important is a real really fits nicely together as a kind of um proposal in the first place hmm. i was talking to you know, i've been talking to people about burnout and this idea that you never know when you're burnt out until you're burnt out <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the other thing that sprang to mind you know when they talk about boiling a frog you know you stick a frog in warm water and you slowly turn up the temperature they just don't know it's getting hotter and hotter no completely i mean it's just I, I know that if I had had this tool at the time, there's no way I'd have ended up where I ended up. There's absolutely no way. Because now, then, see that with the hindsight of never, ever wanting to get back to that point. So that might not be totally true. But the, um, so when I see a little trend forming now, I do two things. I usually look at that trend on the weekly scale, but in the monthly view. And more often than not, you realize it's a blip and it's not this you know, horrific month after month after month after year after year. That usually helps not catastrophize the future so much. Because, you know, it's like when you're thinking it in the moment, it's like, oh, my God, this is this is it again sort of thing. But the other thing I do is I step in straight away. So I've learned now the things which help and the things which don't. And I just do much more of the stuff that does help if I see perhaps three or four of the one up from the bottom. So if I see it going that way, because it never seems to go from black to white. I, I've seen that with quite a few friends. They go from one extreme to the other extreme. So we're all different. But with me, it tends to be more of a, um, a few stepping stones first to get there. And then when I basically that's what I mean by becoming self-aware. I know myself so well now that I'm able to manage myself far better but then that's also in the context of putting more boundaries in place, saying no to things, all this stuff I've learned, but I've learned it the hard way. Mm. And I wish I'd learned it. I wish I'd been introduced to this stuff at school and then kind of <laughs> learned it in my teens and early 20s, which is what I'm trying to do with my boys now. And you can see a big difference as a consequence of that. Yeah, there's very much, for me, a part of this is uh, one of the strong things is the awareness just having at least an awareness because if you don't yeah. know and, and i think of like even you know you have the different shades of color and how you can track that but even just think of a petrol tank it's like when you know it's down to yeah empty you go and fill yourself up again and it sounds like you have an awareness now of how to fill yourself back up and then there's this other aspect which is quite curious about this is all relative there's like there's no absolute scale of like yeah i'm a 10 and you're a 10 and we're all 10 and that means we're all good it's like it's it's about how the the shift, the difference that happens over time and, and then interpreting that for yourself. It sounds like. but, but relative to you. So those mm. five bars for one person mm. will be there. For another person, they're there. And because it's a relative scale to the person, that's the thing about making it as simple as it is. It's it, You become self-aware of where those extremes are and it's on you to think where those divisions are in between. So the barometer is just literally a barometer of yourself. And, and I think that's that's the key, really, because well, from when you're filling out questionnaires and things, 
those numbers seem to be kind of universal as if there is a five, you know, that is five for everybody. And it's such a ridiculous thing. I mean, I'm not saying this from any sort of trained point of view. I'm only talking from my own experience, which is why I can only really talk about myself. But um, I do think a lot of the things I've sort of come across won't fill out forms for doctors um, when they're on medication, for instance, but they will show them this picture. And I know people who will show therapists this picture, and it's very easy to show people this picture because it's pretty and it's beautiful, you know, and the mm. colors age in. And the tonal range is the same across all the colors. So what I tend to do sometimes is, sometimes I, <laughs> I know this sounds a bit bonkers, but sometimes I just can't look at red. And other days, you know, red is like really what I love the most. So I change the colors all the time when I'm looking at it. But then I don't look at it every day either because I log it every day. That's the important thing. Hmm. And then looking at it is when you, you want to or when you need to. You know, you talked about slow trends and just for some of us, we don't think, we don't know whether we're going down a, sp- a slope or we kind of feel like we're not, we're not allowed to feel bad. It's like life is so good around us. It's like well, you know, there's why there's no justifiable reason for my mood to be in such a sort of dark way. And I just wanted to just maybe just hear a bit more about your story of your awareness and what you thought was affecting your mental well-being and how you came to just un- coming to terms with with managing it and also being aware of it. Well, the strangest thing. And I feel like this is a confessional now, <laughs> is that um, I've kind of felt like it my whole life that I can remember. So even being a little kid, I would feel injustices, whether it's in school or bullying or whatever it is. And then as I grew through teens and into sort of early 20s, I was very became very conscious of um, our place in the world and what that's built on the back of. So I've always had this kind of um, guilt associated with that. And I used to feel like I was wearing this rucksack for donkey's years. And that rucksack was heavy and there was nothing I could do. You know, I I was instrumental in making that rucksack as well. So um, I didn't really know what to do with that other than I just had this feeling I wanted to help people. But then the frustration that comes out of that is um, makes the whole thing worse because there was no tangible way for me to do that at scale. You know, I was an architect. I was working on decent public projects and doing, you know, smart domestic work and things like that. But that, especially the domestic side of it, can often seem a little bit hollow because you're helping someone who can afford to pay you to help them and the impact is only for them. So, you know, and I wasn't into smartphones, social media, any of this kind of stuff, because I'm quite cynical about the, the sort of larger effects of it, um, which is why this is a massive irony. And the fact that I'm trying to turn it into a proper business, because I've got other charitable aims, which if it's a business and can make money, then that can be diverted into actually achieving bigger things at scale. And I'm kind of grateful, really, for what happened, because if I hadn't, you, you talked about this kind of sliding scale. So I'd experienced depression off and on for a, my whole life, but it'd never be for more than a week or two. It might be really deep at that point, but you start to learn that it does come and go. And then you start to learn that actually it comes more frequently the more you overwhelm yourself, in my case. But 
when it goes on for years, you are getting up in the morning. Well, let's say you get up in the morning, you're fine. Then one day I can remember sitting in the living room working out uh, the money for this church project. And I can remember my stomach just dropped completely. And I thought, oh, that's not a good sign. And then day after day, that just got worse. And this went on for months and months. And as you get lower, you start to think, well, I'm not sure this can get much lower. But what you realize is you're about here and there's all these other stages you go through. And as I was going through them, it would it would just resonate in different ways. So you, you end up perhaps not wanting to get out of bed is the first thing. Then the next thing is you don't want to wake up. And then the next, you know, after months of that, you still keep going. And then you kind of wish him to be ill. And eventually you reach a total crunch point where you've got to, you, well, I can only speak about myself, but you end up deciding, am I staying here or not kind of thing, which is a terrible place to be. And um, when that happened, that's when I just had to, you know, ask people close to me for help. And uh, still didn't sort of advertise the fact or anything, because being self-employed then, you're sort of paranoid that you're not going to be seen as a safe pair of hands. And, you're not, you know, people are not going to want you to work for them and that kind of thing. But the reality is, was very different to that, actually. I think what you were touching on there, what I heard and what I've heard in the past from your story, there's a sensitivity, uh, the way I'll, I'll interpret it, there's a sensitivity that you have, and not sensitivity in any kind of negative sense, but there's an awareness of the things around you, the world as it is, the way people are living. And there's this kind of, uh, why well, I also hear this sense of responsibility. It's like... You know, yes. How and can I'm I contribute to this? As well, yeah, exactly. I'm complicit in the stuff that I'm criticizing, and I and feel impotent to change it. And that that's why I said the thing earlier about not wanting to make that situation worse by creating more things. So I really not into the, the idea of designing things which then create need. I'm far more about finding a need and hopefully a universal need. And that's what the in the past from doing um, a lot of domestic architecture because yeah. it's not really making any significant difference. Fair enough, it's making a difference for the people who are inhabiting that house or, or whatever it is. But it's not, you know, if, if you can help people in a way that's preventative, that is a real need. And if mm -hmm. you can, um, you think of the knock-ons to that in terms of treating symptoms at the end. It took me years to get better and all I really now, in hindsight, what would have been 10 times better was just not to slide so far in the first place and to recognize that fact. So I keep talking to people at the moment who are working from home. And I was talking to a lady the other day, and I just said, you know, who's keeping an eye on you? And, and actually, I thought, my God, that phrase sort of summarizes this thing as well for people who are home working. Because if I'm mm -hmm. working with you and seeing you every day, I can say, God, you're looking good today. Or I might say, are you okay? Because you look, don't look your normal self or how mm. just simply, how do you feel? Um, and if there's no one to do that, I think that it's handy to have a little thing where you keep an eye on yourself. But what I'm really trying to push as well on the corporate level is that that would be part of some sort of meaningful offering from your employer. So it's not use hundreds and hundreds of pounds to join this club or do this or do that. Because I think the main thing is that if an employer would really care, you need to be given the tool yourself rather than top down and, you know, looked at and spied on so that you feel comfortable enough to do it properly, but that you have this kind of management structure where you're able to check in 
whatever period is appropriate so that you have been given the structure to and the tool to be able to initiate to ask for help and then that help could be the other stuff but unless you've got this baseline and this foundation I don't think it makes a lot of sense because I think a lot of the times people are running around trying to do things to make themselves feel better, but they don't actually know how bad or how good they are in the first place relative to themselves. What you said there, right, who's keeping an eye on you um, is fascinating. It's a con- I think in relation to our work, I was thinking, Lawrence, about the idea of community and to have people that you are in touch regularly with. And you said in in terms of work, when we're working in an office or a building, you know, you will see people regularly. And then if people care, they will mention something and say, you know, give you, see something that you might not see because you don't always look in the mirror. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that we do, like on this call, which we probably never would have done a few years ago, is just have a check-in, even if it's just me and you or me, you and Lana, who we talk to weekly, or any community call we, we have is not assume that everyone's okay or that everyone comes ready for what they're about to enter into, even if it's just a coffee or a chat or a a workshop. And so that feels like a shift that's happened. And and I think more and more people are comfortable. Well, we see it in our community because we encourage people to be vulnerable, but I think I'm hopeful that that's that's, uh, something that's happening more widespread, that people are given permission just to show up with whatever feelings are coming up for them at that time. Um, but I, d- I think it does take, well, it takes permission, doesn't it? It takes modeling for people to know that that's okay and, and a safe space to be able to do that. But when Gareth was talking, I don't know why, but Goldman Sachs came to mind because <laughs> I thought of all, this, all the stories that came out. Well, no, it, it, thought, it made me think of when you talk about companies, I was thinking the companies, well, put it this way, the places and spaces that need this the most, are they receptive to this are they aware because I'm, I'm thinking during lockdown when a lot of these companies had a lot of bad press about how they were treating their employees and giving them access to zoom calls and yoga classes when they're working 20 hours a day and yeah being treated terribly by their boss i think it depends on the institution because what i what i sort of conversations i have if someone's taking it seriously they they get this straight away but there's a lot of kind of token stuff going on as well so I don't think there's a kind of universal answer to that. I think people are starting to learn the importance of it on the big company side because they understand the costs that come to them financially as a consequence of employees ending up not in work and things like that. And even if that's the the lever that makes them take it seriously, I still think it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a good place for them to get to. So, And also some of the charities I've been talking to, and not just charities actually, even private organizations are putting together programs now which are more meaningful to go into these spaces but often i'm finding that if someone is already committed to a, a an expensive piece of something mm-hmm. nobody really wants the simplest tool because it could undermine what mm-hmm. they think they'll get from the most expensive tool and that's why I say it depends who's responsible for these decisions within an organization, which obviously then depends on how big the organization is and whether it's publicly funded or privately funded. So- I have a question for you, Gareth, actually. <clears throat> and this I'm going to frame it within the kind of the messages that we talk about at the Happy Startup School about this idea of working from the inside out. And in your context, is like there was this own, your own need. You had a need to fix a problem for yourself. You created something. 
And now, if you've got that need, there's going to be other people who have that need. And there's a case of actually going out to others and essentially communicating the value of what you do. And from my experience of this, you know, a lot of the time value is in the eye of the customer, not necessarily what we know, you know, we think is valuable, but until they're able to communicate it to themselves, then that's, you know, it's going to be sometimes an uphill struggle. So in your experience, when you're thinking about charities or companies, and you're even talking about now, it's like, oh, if it's not expensive or if it's not complicated, it's not valuable. How have you broached those conversations and what experiences you've other any other experiences about trying to get people to see actually it's simple, but it's also really valuable. Yeah, this this is where it gets really interesting because I I'm not here to sell this thing at all. I'm not here to prove it. I'm not here to twist anybody's arm. And because when I was starting to become ill and got bad, I remember joining a um a mind group. And there was only six people in it. And uh, I used to travel 45 minutes and I didn't even give them my full name because I was so sort of still not wanting, you know, the cat out of the bag kind of thing. But the best thing about that, it wasn't that I learned anything different to what I was already learning. It was the fact that there were five, five other people around the table who felt exactly the same. So for that brief moment, you didn't feel so alone. And the loneliness that comes with depression and anxiety is probably the worst thing about it. You feel literally like it's sort of up in space on an umbilical cord, and even if you're in a packed room. And um, that's what I found, really, is that that core audience and community in Frazzled, which was the motivation for doing it, and other people I knew who felt like I did about things, they just get it straight away. So you show it to someone who's been in that position. And this is what I mean. It's a bit like when you see it in someone's eyes who's also in the same place, you don't feel so alone and it has that same effect. If I show it to someone and they've been somewhere like that, they just get it instantly. And the idea of the notification even being outside of the app. So one chap testing it couldn't talk to me about feedback because he was so depressed at the time. But he just sent me an email saying, you'd be glad to look. No, I haven't looked at the picture yet. But I have done it every day because I'm invested in it now. And then when he came out the other side, he said how great it was when we did talk because he looked back and it wasn't as bad as he thought. So then it helped him not catastrophize the future so much. And it didn't turn him around. So mm. what, I, what I'm trying to say in a nutshell is that, say I tested with over 100 people, but say let's just call it 100, then probably two-thirds of those people got it in terms of their own lives. But the third that thought, well, I don't need this, and that's absolutely fine still could see the value in it for people they knew around them. So they were all happy to then introduce me to other people. You know, So that's mm. what's happened over the last year. I've just talked nonstop to people and trying to build this solid foundation of people who find it useful, helpful, get it. And now I'm at the point of talking to people who can amplify this massively. And it's starting to feel like it is getting towards a tipping point because what I really want to do is get this kind of global, and now this sounds bonkers when I say it, but I'm, I'm thinking of a kind of global campaign called See How You Feel. As simple as that, which is just there to initiate and destigmatize conversations around mental health. So if you could imagine like sports teams or athletes who are um, ambassadors for mental health and perhaps doing some sort of campaign where they chart their journey up to a certain point like the olympics or any it could be anything mm. it could be local it could be famous it could be not famous it could be people posting but i i'm trying to find a way at the moment to galvanize that as a kind of thing that could 
not just happen on a day, but become something. So you've taken the words out of expressing how you feel to make it easier to express how you feel by mm. simply taking the language away. And I, you know, I know people that have done that with husbands and wives where they wouldn't have had that conversation before. And they've just said, can I show you something? And all of a mm. sudden it's opened up what's probably been needed to happen for years. In so the element I was curious about, again, for the people who, who might be listening to this, I'm really now tuning in to people who just want to start something new or they want to do something that feels impactful and purposeful. And one of the things that we like to talk to people about is like, what is, what is this mission question that you have? And I think David Hyatt talks to this. What's this mission question? Um, and in, in a sense, where, where I'm articulating what you, you're saying is like, for me, the mission question is like, if we are able to show how we feel, what would that mean in terms of the well-being of a population of, of of people in the world, and 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 in terms of being able to have even conversations about well-being? And so, my question to you, because one of the things that we find quite curious is like, some people say, "All right, what's your purpose?" and then make something happen. It's like, did it start from the beginning, or has it come out? No, of I this journey, I, I, I don't feel at all like that in any way. So I, I've I could trace this back to twenty years ago, when I was depressed on holidays once, and the kids were little, and our one son had nearly died being born, and all this kind of stuff, and he'd had major heart surgery, uh, arteries the wrong way around, all sorts of things. And we were on holidays, and I should have been happy, but I just had this thing come over me where. I was so depressed, and it was nothing to do with that. It was just this thing we talked about earlier about um, uh, just feeling impotent to change anything in the world and knowing that I'm complicit in misery. And I, I remember being on holidays with my parents and wife and two little kids. Mom wasn't even one. And um, just saying, I've been put here to help people, and one day I'm going to do something and people will be able to hold it in their hand. And I had this crazy idea at the time that, if you touch something, you'd be able to feel the pain that had gone into it. Now, that's not the right way to approach this stuff. But I, it's odd that I was saying that 20 years, well, 18 years ago, when phones didn't even exist. So what's really strange is I can look back over those 20 years now and see all these crazy things that have happened. Hmm. There's no way I should have bought a church. I wanted a field. And the only reason I wanted a field was to be semi-self-sufficient in terms of food and fuel. But then the only way to get to live somewhere like that is, to, you know, church comes along. It makes no sense whatsoever. The next day I'm in charge of a graveyard. So, you know, if COVID hadn't happened, I wouldn't have met Ruby Wax. If I hadn't met her, she wouldn't have written about it. So there's all these bizarre things that happen and they make absolutely no sense whatsoever other than in hindsight, looking back. And the more this is going along, I've got quite, I've got two bigger ideas than mood, but they are, contingent on mood becoming successful and then would lead into this and it's to do with pairing up mental health and soil but under an umbrella movement like park run so that it can mushroom all over the world so you could do something like that at scale but that's going to need a bit of money behind it so that's where so, so there's no plan to any of this stuff whatsoever <laughs> all i've done is whatever's the right thing at a certain point in time and then it just happens to have turned into this straight line but mm. I would never, ever set out to being filmed on the internet, talking publicly, um, having social media accounts, all of these things. They're all because I felt so bad, I don't want anybody else to feel the same way. So mm. I, I don't really want to do any of the other stuff. It's just that 
that other stuff is necessary to make this happen. And the messages I had off a few people, well, more than a few people now, um, or, or have come and talked to me afterwards, have said things which have just made the whole thing completely worthwhile in terms of, you know, set out to do it because of X, would never choose to do it, would never say, mm -hmm. I need a purpose, I need a business. I mean, the purpose mm -hmm. I've always felt is just, can I help people? That's it. Um, but I think, so I would never be the sort of person that would think, oh, there's a gap in that market. How do I fill that? How do I do this? I don't find that satisfying at all. I just find living and how I spend time in the garden, family, friends, see, that kind of thing. I've realized that that's actually got to be number one from now on, because if I don't look after myself, I'm no good to anybody. Whereas in the mm. past, I used to think um, I cared about everybody. I cared about my commitments to people. And I thought I didn't care about myself. That was true. But what I realized after doing the first of these talks, which is only in July, which was um, two lectures thing, is in preparing for that, I realized that actually I didn't care about all these people like I thought I did. I would have looked after myself better. It's as simple as that. But, mm. you know, it's weird to be learning all this stuff at late 40s and 50. But I'm so glad that it all happened now because I sort of feel now like I understand enough. And it's not complicated either that I've got a good chance of riding out the, however long I've got properly, you know, in, in a kind of, well, you can see I'm a lot more energized and happy than I've probably ever been. Happy is the wrong word. Content, I should say. I mm. feel much more, that there's much more balance in my life than there used to be. And um, if anybody ever wants to talk to me about anything, I can just give my own experience. And often that experience is pretty similar to most other people's experience. So it, it's mm. often helpful because, I mean, I've got a few friends in the past. I've seen it in their eyes. You can just tell when you look at somebody if they're in the same place that I was mm. or am from time to time. And I just say, oh, you look like how I feel. And that, usually that's <laughs> the They just go, poof, and the floodgates open. And it's like, oh, my God, we, we ought to talk tonight or tomorrow night because you're only expecting a little bit of, but often it's so ready to explode that mm. you only need to give a little bit of permission by sort of opening up yourself that it, it happens. I'm curious about this difference in response to in terms of impact, the feeling that you're getting from this versus the design work you've done in the past. Um, so that's one part of it. And then an extension of that is, have you had to put any boundaries in place for yourself on the basis that a lot of the response seems to be other people offloading to you? Yeah. Uh, and I say that because there's a friend of ours who ran a business trying to help other people with their mental health and actually realized he didn't want to start a community because actually he would we actually struggle with that himself. So yeah. there was, yeah. yeah, by helping others, you end up making yourself more Absolutely. Ill. I'm very, very conscious of that because often, you know, you empathize and mm. it, it's not just draining. You actually take it on board and feel some of it feel yourself. Pain. Yeah. So that's very tricky. Um, so yes is the answer. I've started to recognize that that could potentially be a problem. I mean, the ultimate irony would be if I made myself ill again doing this. Yeah. And recently, I mean, the, the public speaking side of it, so I, the first time I ever did it was the do lectures in July. And then I had to do it in London three times in the last two weeks. Or well, once was as an attendee, but it was quite intimate. And the other two were proper public talks. 
And I was so nervous for days and days and days that that was not great either. So you go in there already depleted. Mm. <laughs> so you're not even like sort of full enough to be taking all that on as well. But it was great because what actually happened was it just validated no end. I went up there thinking, okay, and I met charity, you know, that I really want to work with and they're interested. And the conversation we had is that I'm starting to say all this sort of stuff and they're starting to talk to me about me being the best ambassador possible for this and all of that. And I'm saying, yeah, but I'm very conscious of exactly what you're talking about. Mm And I don't want to build a massive audience and community and things like that. I said, I actually want to get it to a point where it's got enough traction of its, of its own that I can actually step back, become anonymous again, and work on the charitable side. That's what I really want to do. But I also understand that me talking about it and why it's happened and how it's happened gives it integrity. And it's like that initial push. Mm. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there's boundaries which are kind of day-to-day, but I'm also thinking boundaries, you know, over longer timescales because mm. I can't do this forever. I've been doing it intensely for a year now, you know, talking every single day to people. And it's great because that that foundational layer of original people who like it is pretty solid, you know, because like I said earlier, the ones that it didn't, resonate with that's fine that's absolutely fine i'm not here to convince anybody of anything the other thing i'm finding is more and more i need to put routines in place so i'm not somebody who's ever worked with proper routines and i think that's half of the reason why i would end up depressed because you just be literally doing what you feel on certain days and if if you didn't feel certain things you wouldn't be doing them so but i started going in the sea about two years ago just by chance, because I met this seal in the sea one day, and I just kept going back. I'm sure I've told Carl, I, I might have told you this on the quiet, I don't know. But every time I went back, I'd see a seal every other day. And all of a sudden, I started to feel very different. I felt humble, small, all the things I like. I felt of no consequence. All the thinking just stopped because it's cold, and that's like I'm plugging the TV and all the static disappears. I felt connected to nature. It was just brilliant, and I just kept doing it and doing it. And now I try to go every day if I can. It's not quite every day because things have got busy. And then I could see that reflected in my calendar. The more I was doing it, the more I was seeing the kind of bleed from a Monday into the rest of the week deteriorate. And then I realized that, and then I started to change how I treated a Monday. So there's a from what you were just saying here, from sort of, prompted from Lawrence's question there's this thing about really understanding your own boundaries and I would say also in our language this idea of your own needs um, whether that's for peace or for you know I would agree with you 100% because restoration and being able to use that as a way to decide whether to do something or not even this idea of like I I don't want to start a community I don't want to be in the end of just everyone's beck and call because there's certain needs that you have that go contrary to working in that way and being able to be quite intentional about that and there is a need for impact and to see things to to feel like you're helping people on a broader scale it sounds like anyway so that that for me was was interesting in terms of anyone listening to us who to this who who is familiar with our work because what I'm trying to get is a lot of things that you're talking about kind of an embodiment an example of the things that we're trying to get people to do when they're thinking about the, the mm. work well, can they I, want can to I do add one to it as well, Carlos? Which is yeah. that 
I can only ever be myself. There's absolute, I can't be one inch different to me being me. And I think that's a key as well, is that when you're just honest and straight and you're being yourself, what happens is that the people who you get on with is quite solid because there's no bullshit there and there's no uh, trying to get something as a consequence of your behavior or anything. I'm literally just talking about myself in an honest way without trying to convince it. Obviously, I want to gain traction and I want it to expand, but that's never the ulterior motive to how I behave or post anything. The other element to this that I'm curious about, because, you know, you you talked about, you know, the, the discomfort of leading up to giving a talk, but then through talking once and then twice and through having lots of conversations, it sounds like you got more clarity if not yeah. about what the thing is but how you want to talk about it and the story totally. you want to tell it's, it's almost the responses from people when i speak to them almost they they keep evolving how i see this thing so the thing is as simple mm. as possible but it's so interesting to hear when you boil something down to absolute simplicity that allows it more easily to be interpreted in different ways and mm. when i listen to people and i hear back how they use it it it's great. It's really great. And it reinforces a lot and validates a lot. But I learn a hell of a lot as well. Like a lot. Because we're all the same, but we're all different as well. <laughs> it's just such a conundrum. Well, this is a message I think that I think is quite powerful for someone just doing it and, 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 and being able to express it is in terms of how it's valuable to them is this idea of like you can start off with an idea or a preconception about what it is it is and how it works and how it's people are supposed to use it but until you you know the pedal hits the metal and you actually the rubber hits the roads it's you never know if that's going to be the best way for people to interact with something yeah because i tell you the funny thing is quite a few people weren't into so a lot of people listening it was the key i would say that's probably majority so they you'd have a little think about the day nothing too heavy but it wasn't about an intuitive thing in the moment. But then lots of other people have come forward now through talking or whatever, and they might do it first thing in the morning because that's actually the thing that they've recognized they struggle with. And that therefore is boiling it down to a more detailed way of using it where they just tap it without thinking. So they wake up in the morning and just tap it. This is how I felt this morning. And then they notice in whether, so that is the barometer and the baseline they try into assess and improve on so and then some people do it in conjunction like i think it's the missing element in a lot of these things like headspace and calm and all that is that if you're doing these things how do you measure if the consequence is that you feel better so i think that all of this stuff whatever you're doing in life is really good to have a baseline before you start doing things and then you can see if things are shifting as a consequence to it so I'd like to finish off um, just talking a bit more about just this journey of building and this process of just getting to something that people had in their hands. One of the things that I hear a lot is this idea of, oh, I need to protect my IP. I need to like get a patent. And, you know, uh, there's like they get bogged down in the details and the legals of making something before they've actually made anything. Yeah. And I'd just like to hear your experience of this and what you would say to someone who's who's preoccupied with protecting their idea before even making something. I think there's so many, I'm not sure what the right word would be, 
uh, let's just call it concerns on every single level that if you start trying to um, address each one of those, I don't think you'd ever do anything like a rabbit in the headlights. Now I'm not saying I've got an answer either because the, you know, I've been through that. And the problem is that if you do anything, which is simple, easy, but really good, obviously you're going to have people copying it. But unless you're prepared to go to court, you could say, what is the point in all of that IP anyway, in the first place and trademarks and, you know, design uh, copyrights and things. So I think I mean, I literally live and breathe it every day for a year and I will continue to for the foreseeable future. So I think it's like anything where stuff gets copied. People can copy things, but they can't be you. And this is the only thing that I have as a kind of safety net in my mind is that I don't think anyone could be me. So I've got all these ideas about how I would evolve potentially in the future. I've got other ideas about what it can turn into. Getting it on a screen the size of a house at the V&A last day helps because that'll be recorded. Um, Ruby Wax writing about it a year ago, or I, I can't even remember how long ago, helps. And I just try to take public ownership. And think at some point, you know, I, I will probably have to evolve to differentiate myself further. Hmm. But also I think, you know, that because I'm motivated on a charitable level, and that doesn't mean I don't want to earn a living from it. I do, but I want to earn a living so that I don't have to think about that able to go and do all these other things because what i'm finding is i'm meeting so many people in disparate places that it would only take connections between them to make other things happen it's just they don't know each other so what's really cool is thinking that you might be a sort of bit of a um not a node or anything but you know just some point that all this stuff is connected to but all of that other thing doesn't connect to each other so i love the thought of like for instance i would I was talking last week. Um, there was a lady I don't know. Well, I know now. Space Ten. They they're like a same thing that feeds into IKEA. And there's a lady Helen Jobs. She gave a talk the same afternoon as me. Very good. And she name checked a couple of people. And the one lady she name checked, who you must follow, sort of thing. Turns out was sitting next to me on the panel on Sunday at the V&A. Her practice is called Matter. I've got a working title for this pro other project called Matter about soil and mental health and thinking of it like a parkrun type movement, we start talking and hopefully we'll have a conversation. Well, we will. We'll have a conversation at some point. And great. I mean, that's bonkers and things like that. I keep that. My brother said to me, you must get in touch with this rugby player. And this rugby player is talking a lot about um, early onset dementia. The next thing, I literally put the phone down and... It was less than five minutes later, I had a text off another friend mentioning the same rugby player saying he offered to me about his mental health. Do you want me to put me in touch, put you in touch with him? And these things just keep happening. Really, really odd. So what I'm learning more and more is not to, I've got a direction, but not a master plan as such. And I'm just going with things as they happen. And that's the same with like making little social media posts and things. I, I haven't got like 10 of them lined up and then I press a button. I'm, I'm reading a book one day and I think, that resonates with exactly what I'm thinking now. Like between those London trips, I was completely frazzled and I had to go in the garden and I looked down and I could see all the tomatoes because of the time of year were just sort of on their way out. And I thought, I thought for a long time that the garden is like a, a, a mirror almost direct of how I am because I didn't touch it for two and a half years when I had no interest in anything. And I thought, yeah, 
it's time to sort the tomatoes out today. <laughs> and at the same time, that'll sort of get my head straight as well. And, it, and you know, just a little post on it. And that's cool. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing too, it's not premeditated. It's just not too contrived. No, exactly. And that's what I meant about being yourself. And, you know, I've already designed a couple of different evolutions for this thing based on what people have said to me, but I keep coming full circle back to the thing of the core audience and what it was meant for. And I think I've got to gain traction in that first before then turning it into other things. But the one thing, one book I would recommend if anybody ever wants to think about apps, because it was brilliant. Um, a good friend recommended it to me and it's by Basecamp. So if you look up, it's online, you can download it. It's, it's excellent advice all the way through it. So it's a base camp guide to apps. And it, mm -hmm. it tells you, you know, it's so true, some of the stuff it says. It doesn't matter, say 100 people request a certain additional feature. You know, it encourages you to just ask that question. Oh, just say no, say no, say no. You know, just keep questioning what is the minimum viable product and to basically what is the core audience that that was built for. And I keep coming back to that all the time. I've over-summarized it, but there's loads of good advice in that book. Uh, the, is that Getting Real? I think, no. Did you say, is it called Getting Real? I think it yeah. might be. I can't remember because I haven't looked at it for about yeah. eight or nine months, but it, yeah. well, probably over a year. But when I was first thinking about this stuff, I went through it and made notes. And it turned out there was a lot of notes because there was so much good stuff in there. The thing that stood out for me when you were talking was the serendipity and the awareness of the opportunity that was coming to you. And I'm, I'm guessing because you, you had this clarity, this kind of need to, to help yourself and to help other people, these connections that were coming, they may have came anyway in the past or with may have been coming in the past, but they just weren't relevant because you weren't so clear about what it is that you're trying to do and what you need help with. And so there's this element of, keeping it simple, keeping it clear, going back to who it is that you want to help, what's important to you, what's important to them, helps to filter out, not only filter out the noise, but really amplify the signal yeah. of, Absolutely. okay, I need to talk to that yeah. person. Okay, I need to do that thing. It's legible. You know, I, I know I sort of can talk a little bit too much in terms of a simple question, right? But I can, I should, I can also just tell you it in several sentences, you know, had my own itch, scratched it, found other people with the same age. Let's try and empower the individual to change society. Boom. Uh, on that, there's one question. I think you talked about it before, but I just wanted to just acknowledge it because, uh, because we were talking about the app and Sarah was asking the idea of privacy. How are you protecting privacy for customers? There's a Mozilla article which goes through the privacy on apps and basically everything that you could you wouldn't want is what happens. So, and the worst ones for not being private, believe it or not, are prayer apps and then mental health apps. So the ones which you would expect to be the most private are not. And when I described earlier about not even giving my name at this group, when I joined Frazzled, I didn't give them my name. I would just take my surname off and it would just be Gareth. That's how much privacy was important to me. So anyone this app we don't even know who's downloaded it it's anonymized it only lives on their phone so their data is their own and that was key for me that and that's why you know people obviously make money by selling data and all that kind of stuff and i don't want to do anything like that so the reason i started off thinking i could do this for free the 
clear problem with that is that I would have made myself ill finding the money to make it happen. And then the next thing then is, okay, if you've got all these other ambitions and you want it to be completely private, how do you how do you maintain it? How do you evolve it? So therefore, it couldn't be free, which is why the one-for-one one thing has come in. And we're just working out that now, how we can, at scale, hand a load over to a charity or whoever is appropriate. So um, I think privacy is absolute key. It, like, literally is one of the foundational layers of it. It's meant for an individual, it's meant to empower an individual and for them to only share if they feel they want to share. And that's why I talked earlier about within a company structure, I think it's so important that that's within a management structure where the individual has somewhere to go rather than this idea of being looked down Mm. at what's going on. Because A, you won't tell the truth, or B, you might not even do it. I mean, I've talked to big, big organisations that just find that they want people to self-report like that, but within a structure where the top can see what's being reported and mm-hmm. you either get um, misinformation or just no buy-in whatsoever. So that thing of privacy, I think, especially if you're feeling like bad, you know. Yeah. Well, I think that's the key message is like, you know, how much if you're feeling vulnerable, if you're feeling not, yeah, like you said, bad, yeah, the last thing you want to do is be worrying that someone else might be seeing what you're experiencing when you don't want them to. And, and that, you could, you know, that could lead to that information being abused as well in terms of how you treat somebody. Before we close off, um, is there anything that you're doing in the near future that you'd like to point people to? Is there any talks or is there something that you'd like people to do for you? If anybody tries it and likes it and finds it helpful just if they don't mind posting about it and sharing it. Because that's what I'm trying to do is just gather some sort of momentum where you might see something crop up over here and then all of a sudden over there and then perhaps over here. And it's a bit like, um, this is a funny thing. It's a bit like when I describe this story, there's no straight line to it. And when I, It's like painting a wall. I find it very difficult to paint a wall methodically. I end up doing a patch, a patch, a patch, and eventually all those patches join up, don't they? And the wall is painted. And if anybody wants to have a chat about it, just give me a shout. I'm on LinkedIn, Gareth Dornsey. I love Gareth's story anyway. I think it's just a powerful one because I think it, like Carlos said, it reminds us of the power of tapping into someone, something in, within us really that maybe doesn't make sense until you look at all the component parts and rewinding 20 years and you go, oh, of course this is what I should be doing with my life now. <laughs> but it didn't make sense maybe a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect to it is just the simplicity of the app, which I love and I think is a reminder. Maybe it's inspired by Basecamp, but this idea of sometimes the most profound things are actually the simplest, and it's really, really, really hard to keep things simple. It really is, because everybody wanted different things as I was testing it. So I designed it before Basecamp because I had to show it to Ruby. That was where it came from. But then obviously it evolved through... Mm working with my friend Marco and um, the, uh, the base camp thing just reinforced all that. And there's a real touchstone going through the beta testing process. I did that for four or five months. Mm. And everybody wanted it to be their thing. So, you know, whatever they have to... <laughs> Basically, learning to, learning to say no yeah. is the hardest thing, isn't it? It really okay. was. But what really helped a lot was... Um, uh, when I started going in the sea, David Hyatt is a friend and he, he 
comes in the sea every time I go, we go in together as you know nearly every day. So he's probably had Yuri for the last 18 months off me, sort of saying, Oh, this is what's happening today, sort of thing. So that so he's excellent in terms of um you know you stick free coaching. Again. <laughs> nice. Wow. So yes, yeah, so the, so the other that, yeah. thing I was going to ask was just if anybody can think of a good outlet for this, whether it's an organization or a charity and feel that they would be happy to make an introduction, then just give me a shout. For those listening um, on the recording, would you like to share your email address or would you like them to go through moodapp.io? Um, if they're on LinkedIn, just message me on that or ask okay. to connect or anything. And there's an email on the website, which is moodapp.io at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you very much, Gareth. I think the, th- the thing that's uh, ringing in my ears at the moment is uh, one of our summer camps, a guy called Floris Coote was did a workshop on turning your weaknesses into superpowers or into a business, I should say. Um, the, I'm linking this because for a lot of people sort of a, you know, tackling your mental well-being, tackling depression, having depression is a weakness, then using that and understanding that and that sensitivity and that need to help turning that into a business that actually means that it will help other people feels to me like a, a resonant journey and, and a way of thinking about that. So thank you very much for connecting those dots. Thank oh, you thank very you much for, for uh, yeah, sharing your story and also giving, uh, I think, a real-world experience of what it means to just work out loud, move forward with an idea, with a clear intention, but allowing yourself to be open to the serendipity that brings it to you, or your, that arises when you're just allowing as well as yeah, moving forward. It's just taken a long time to learn that. <laughs> awesome. Well, we hope your lessons will accelerate the learnings of people listening to this. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Entrepreneur Podcast. To hear more inspiring conversations like this, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for the Happy Entrepreneur. In March, we'll be launching Tribe 7 of our Vision 2020 program. If you're at a point in your career or entrepreneurial journey where you're asking yourself, what next? And you need the clarity and confidence to make some bold decisions about a new direction, then this program is for you. We'll help you define what success really means to you, understand the impact that is yours to make, make sure your mission is both energetically and financially sustainable, and also learn how to build a supportive community around yourself. We want people who are driven to do good in the world and are tired of trying to do it on their own. We'll share the key lessons we've learned while building the Happy Startup School and pivoting from the stressful peaks and troughs of agency life to a life of freedom, adventure, service and connection. We value learning, play and friendship and we'd like to help you discover the values and the work that align more to who you are. Don't struggle alone, and don't get sidetracked by other people's measures of success. Discover for yourself what it means to create effortless impact. To apply for the next tribe, go to vision.happystartups.co. We look forward to hearing from you.